You're listening to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Sabrina Garone. And I'm J.D. Allen. Residents of coastal communities are defined by their waters. As Long Islanders, you and I know this better than anybody. But it's true for Connecticut residents, too. Spanning almost the entire length of Long Island Sound, Connecticut's coastline is home to millions of people. The quality of water. Either what falls from the sky when it rains, floods from the coast when it storms, or bubbles up from the tap to drink. Is on the minds of residents, including our student scientists, like Corinne. We were looking at how in some places water is full of lots of chemicals and probably stuff that we wouldn't want to ingest. Things I don't even know of in our water system and it's concerning that we're drinking that we don't know what it is. Clean water is important for all of us to live, of course. But also for fun and recreation. When you go to a stream and you're like, dang, this water is polluted, there's still life existing in that. You know what I mean? Like. You shouldn't be drinking the water from the Long Island Sound, but there's still ecology going on there. We learned from environmental activist Kat Morris that residents of this state can have a challenging relationship with nature. When people only think of nature as something to get something from, as opposed to a relationship to have, as opposed to a living system that you are very much integrated into, I think it makes it easy to step away and stay disconnected. And that's truthfully where I'm at mentally. I'm trying to figure out the answer to that question. Bridgeport has a front row seat to the estuaries of Long Island Sound. One of the most productive types of ecosystems on Earth. But the city's history of industry has polluted it. Young people here want to change that. Exploring their solutions might give their home the best chance at survival and help save coastal places beyond their city. Where millions of people call home. Important news breaks at all hours of the day, and the reporting and the resources behind all the stories you hear on WSHU depends on the sustained energy of people who care, people like you. I'm WSHU News Director Terry Sheridan. Your investments in WSHU Public Radio have helped us face reporting challenges and meet them effectively, providing important information and ideas. Thank you for listening and supporting WSHU. We're stronger together. We're taking a walk with Kat in East Rock Park near her apartment and Yale University in New Haven, about a half hour from Bridgeport by car. I just love the abundance of trees, but my the combination of a body of water and a huge tree canopy is my bread and butter. To recap, Kat went to high school in Bridgeport after growing up through middle school as the only black girl in her class in the suburbs. She says she took for granted living in an environment rich with green forests and parks. What it feels like I've noticed about black families specifically is this desire to keep your kids close out of like a fear of what could happen, right? I feel as though there's like an inflated sense of like danger of gang violence and stuff like that. But in all my time living in Bridgeport, I was never really met with any of it in my face, right? But if you're aware of that risk, it's kind of more of a like, mm, 
what are you doing outside? Stay close to the house. You know what I mean? Kat settled here after studying public policy at UConn. She identifies as a scholar activist. Her focus is environmental justice, which our student scientists are also interested in. We know about environmental justice, but I think we lose track when we just isolate those words, environmental justice, we lose track of the intersectionality of race, class, gender, that, uh, and all the other isms in the book that filter into that. Yeah, I think everything's connected. I'm in a space where I'm trying to like come up with new language on this because I'll be talking to people, I'll say environmental justice, and you know how, you know, people either their eyes light up, or they're like, oh, you know what I mean? And I've been seeing the latter, you know, kind of deflated, disinterested. But when I say, yeah, man, we need more tree canopy and less pollution in there, they're like, yeah, I hate that stuff. And I'm like, wait, so you like environmental justice, but you don't like the name or what they're perceiving the concept to be. And I think it's because it's been so divorced from everything else. They're more interested in the the social disparities or the economic disparities and not necessarily in like the actual physical environment yeah the natural environment yeah right it's kind of it feels weird there's a gas plant that used to be a coal plant right at one end of seaside park and then if you kind of go in the opposite direction towards the beach there's the largest incinerator in the state which is kind of walking distance from the park you know definitely 20 30 minute walk but it's like a five ten minute walk from the pt barnum apartments right so people's homes but if they wanted to find a grocery store that wasn't a bodega, that's like three buses away, you know? So again, it's about kind of how we're making choices and decisions that impact people's lives. Just like our work with the kids, Kat tries to give her community the space to explore the environment they live in. And that's why I kind of really um, love the fact that you have your middle schoolers that are kind of intrigued by ecology and the environment and like getting involved with it because even if they're kind of responding to it from like a stem lens they're building a relationship and that will carry out everywhere Back in the classroom our student scientists are narrowing down the environmental issues that are most important to them We're not going to tackle or come up with a potential solution for all of climate change, that's a lot. Think about something that is impacted that you really care about. For Corinne, Taylor, and Abril, that's drinking water. The water that comes from the tap and what happens when it goes down the drain. Um, we're now looking at the different chemicals in the water. Is it mercury in your blood? Mercury's in your blood, right? It's quite dangerous. Which is why I don't... It's apparently My in our water. My instinct tells me it shouldn't be in our blood. But there's a lot of things that shouldn't be in us that is. Like with all things, there is a certain amount where it's okay. Yeah. And then when you go over that amount, it is no longer okay. The girls have learned something through their research, that Bridgeport's drinking water mostly comes from reservoirs in the Fairfield County area. The greater Bridgeport system is run by Aquarion Water, which is part of the much larger publicly traded utility company. It serves close to 400,000 people in the city and its neighboring towns. Some water is filtered through local treatment plants and some is filtered naturally underground. And, you know, I feel like we should stop using so much city water because I was looking up the chemicals 
in the city water and well this was just found in tap water in general some things found in tap water is like lead chlorine mercury uh chlorine can make your skin dry and so as your hair and that's found you could shower with it it's probably the best thing and um you know lead could damage your health in very small doses. Scientists like Long Island Soundkeeper Bill Lucy monitor the region's water quality before it's treated for drinking. And a lot of what we do is monitor both the ecological parameters of water quality through what's called the Unified Water Study, and then we respond to pollution reports. We measure the ecological parameters of 44 bays and harbors in Long Island Sound. Uh, That's getting up towards 50%. 40, 50 percent of all the bays and harbors in Long Island Sound, which is a huge sample size. The students found this data in their research. Because when they started looking at the different things that they were curious about in their city, they started using the tools that their science classes teach them. Like, okay, who are creating primary sources um, and looking at different uh, and studying the environment. Well, that's really good to hear. <laughs> We're on Google. We show up in Google. Data shows chemicals like bromatochloramthane, chloroform, dibromochloramthane, and more have made their way from the polluted environment into Bridgeport's drinking water. And if you're thinking, hmm, that doesn't sound too good, you'd be correct. These kind of chemicals have been linked to cancer, kidney and liver damage, and neurological issues. And I feel that I don't want to be drinking such chemicals. You know, I don't know what those chemicals are. I can't even pronounce those chemicals. I shouldn't be putting anything in my body that I can't pronounce. These chemicals and changing water conditions are also disastrous for the ecosystem. And the reason that's so important is that you have a $30 million shellfish industry here and so when they're very small is when changes in pH can really affect the, the integrity of that shell. And if it's weak, um, they're less protected from predators and they can be open to disease and it can start eating away the, the exoskeleton as well. Like we mentioned earlier, Bridgeport sits on the coast of Long Island Sound. Bill Lucy picks us up in one of his patrol boats in Bridgeport's Black Rock Harbor. And again, it's just a, it's a matter of how many people per square mile? And because they all need houses to live in, which have roads going to them, and the houses and the roads don't absorb water. They all use toilets, and it's got to go somewhere. But Bill says things have been improving. The goal of today's excursion is to give these waters a quick checkup. Well, you can see the color of the water here. This discoloration is from the uh, sewage overflows. When it rains, a lot of Bridgeport has pavement, and so that runs down the drains, and it combines into the sewage collection system. It's a very old style. There's only six communities left in Connecticut that have combined systems that move rainwater and sewage. Sometimes it would smell so bad, you could smell it on I-95 when you were driving by. There's a number of apartments over there, um, federal housing, and they're right behind the sewage treatment plant. So. Um, they were, they've been breathing this stuff for years. On the boat, we're also joined by a research team that's studying the impact of stormwater runoff and sewage on the harbor. Ellie Gantz is a doctoral student at Yale. Yeah, so I'm taking mud samples today. So I have a very long rope connected to a grab sampler, which kind of looks like, um, 
claw from a claw machine and it it drops to the bottom and then it snaps closed and you can get a pretty good sample of the benthos like what bill was talking about benthos those are small animals and microorganisms that live on the floor of the ocean so we're hoping to get some of these single-celled organisms called foraminifera Forminifera. Forminifera. It's really important that I can say it right. Yeah, so they're single-celled. They build shells, which are really beautiful. Um, and today I'm using them as bioindicators for water quality and environmental change. Those shells can reveal how acidic the water is as they'll decalcify with ocean acidification. Ellie lowers the contraption over the side of the boat. We're not too far outside of the marina, so the water isn't very deep. It doesn't take long for the claw to hit the bottom and grab a sample of mud. Did you feel it? Uh, I think it's heavier. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ellie hoists the sample back okay. on the boat into a bucket. So you can already smell that it's very sulfuric. It smells like it smells eggs. like rotten eggs. Rotten yeah. eggs yeah. So that means that it's, oh, that's a huge sample. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Anoxic, so it does not have a lot of oxygen in, in the mud. The mud is thick and black and really sludgy looking. She uses a spoon to scrape all of the sludge out to be looked at at the lab. High school intern Jeanette Awal is observing. In a word, how would you describe it? I would say rotten eggs. It does smell like rotten eggs. It smells pretty bad. Jeanette is a Bridgeport native. She scored this internship after participating in Horizons Bridgeport, an after-school program for underserved communities. Well, I'm not going to lie. At first, um, I didn't really like it because I, you know, I just wanted to spend my summer some other way, probably just hanging around with my friends. But then um, as I grew older, I realized um, the it was such a great opportunity that many people don't get because it's just helped me so much um, throughout high school even like and it's led me to here kind of learning about probably what I want to do in the future in college and stuff like that and so I think um, it's just it's great to what it has led me to and I'm just excited to see what happens in the future. Is that marine science? Is that environmental science? Like what, what are you being led to? Um, definitely science. Um, I've just always been interested in science. I don't know. It's just been something that I've been fascinated in since a young age. This is home. Yeah. You know, yeah. and by doing this kind of stuff, you're you're also seeing your home for all that it is, and you're also seeing like, okay, we can improve it. It's not you know all the things that we found at the bottom of the of the water. Jeanette is just a few years older than our middle school student scientists. Maybe our time together exploring their city will have a lasting impact on them too. Yeah, I definitely like, there's days where I do go home and tell my parents about like the stuff that I learn in like out in the water, or even just in like meeting, Zoom meetings. Um, and when I tell them about it, like they're just, they just tell me, oh wow, I just never knew about that stuff. People don't know, sometimes don't know what's going on and sometimes it's just, it's a shock to them, you know. Back in the classroom, our student scientists wonder if more can be done by residents in their own homes. They feel like rainwater could possibly be a cleaner, more sustainable solution. It's a filter that cleans rainwater, so it could be usable. Like, you could drink it, you could, like, normal water, tap water. 
probably the size of a trash can, like a big trash can. The team gets to brainstorming. Taylor is doing some research on how something like this could be made for cheap. The cheesecloth, I know that um, one of, according to Google, cheesecloth can be biodegradable. No, it is not expensive because you clearly buy it off Amazon for like $5. Good quality too. Um, <laughs> You can also wash cheesecloth if the quality is good enough. So you can reuse it for a few times, like just put it in a washer, like hand wash it and everything. And they've even developed a prototype. So if you were to describe what's in your hand for people that can't see it, what is it? Two cups uh, together, and then the bottom part of one cup is cut off, and there's a filter like inside of the cup so it could clean the cup water. And now this is a much smaller version of something that you uh, have ideas for. Yeah. So when it rains, the water... Goes in through the filter, and the filter removes all of the bacteria, bacteria inside of the water, and it goes inside and through the... There's going to be a mortar inside, and the mortar prevents the water um, from bacteria and flies laying eggs inside. Depending on how big we can get this, or how much rain you get in a year, I wouldn't completely turn off your water system, but I feel like it's a great backup, or at least your first source before you go to city water. While their prototype might need some work before we can drink from it, Yuck. the students have identified that reusing rainwater is an underused resource. For lawn care, bathing, or recreation. Next episode, we're going to revisit this prototype as the students research the impact rainwater has on their city. Ground is reported and produced by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Molly Ingram helped with the mixing. Samantha Simon, Melanie Formosa, and Megan Briggs did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Aria Elon. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Joan Gantz Cooney Center and the Sesame Workshop. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts.